Rusty Quill presents. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Extreme content warning. This episode of the West Side Fairy Tales contains content that should not be experienced by anybody. In particular, those with a history of susceptibility to triggering media. It may contain scenes of extreme sexual indecency, violence, harm to persons of a protected class, and worse. Avoid playing this episode if you are in proximity to others who do not consent to exposure to such content and terminate the playback immediately if you experience distress. Proceeding past this warning constitutes consent to experience this episode. Again, this is an extreme content warning. Be advised. One's likes are hardly ever universal. Often they're swayed by the measures of the day. Hunger seasons bad food. Wealth makes a dollar on the ground not worth picking up. One man's trash is another's treasure, as they say. Hello, my name is Tyler Bell, and I'm the host, author, and producer of the West Side Fairy Tales. Today's story concerns a couple days in the life of a junk man. That sort who goes around picking up what others no longer desire. Trash. Scrap. He's a simple man, concerned only with simple pleasures. But a lucky find on the side of the road might change that for him. Might, in fact, reveal the more poisonous desires lurking beneath the roof of his own home. But, before all that, today's recommendations. Today's literature recommendation is Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Cosby. Set in rural Virginia, this crime thriller follows Beauregard Bug Montag, 
a talented mechanic and getaway driver, through the travails of his final job. It's a straightforward story, pitting a man with a troubled past against gangsters, shady co-conspirators, and himself as he tries to move on from his own violent history. But it absolutely slaps. I don't find myself reading a lot of crime thriller type books, but this one really grabbed me and didn't let go. It also serves as a compelling character study of Bug and his dual roles as working class father and reluctant thief, mixing violence, burnt rubber action pieces, and home drama perfectly together. Absolutely check it out. This month's random horror recommendation is Midnight Mass, the 2021 horror thriller from Mike Flanagan. Following up on the success of Haunting of Hill House and Haunting of Bly Manor, this Netflix original follows the residents of a tiny island community through their lives and the inevitable disruption caused by the addition of something evil in their midst. Despite some poor monologuing in the later episodes, and a few cast members seemingly being completely forgotten about, Midnight Mass packs a punch. It's a somber reflection on sobriety, religion, faith, and generational connections in a small community mixed with some outrageous bloodletting in the later episodes. A flawed but fun, Midnight Mass is definitely something you should check out. Watch it on Netflix. Now, without further ado, today's story. Don't want... pulled up along the old whatever it was, stopping well shy of the thing and cursing when the rooster tail of dust from his truck fell over it anyway. He watched the dirt falling like that first dry lung full of snow the sky spits out at the end of November, figuring maybe if you left it, there might not be anybody to claim it until those same snows came three months hence. Clint fished his Winstons out of his pocket and popped one in his mouth, fishing for his lighter. When he couldn't find it, he cursed again and stepped out onto the road. The loose door slammed a touch harder than he'd wanted it to, setting the rough collection of shit in the bed to shaking. Most of it was what he thought of as farm shit. Things he ought to know the names of, having been born in the heart of white trash Manor territory up north. But Clint Summerdown had lost that cheap heritage when his father moved him south to Skohegan at four and even further down to Augusta at ten. The paper said there'd be work, and the paper had lied. And so Clint Summerdown had been raised the son of a drunken fool instead of the son of a drunken farmer, and thus knew nothing about the farm shit in the back of his truck other than the smelter paid pennies on the pound if it wasn't too rusted. And there was other shit. House shit, restaurant shit. In his time, he'd scuttered past enough rust and wreckage that he'd even scavenged austere city shit, like it's from shuttered-down newspaper buildings and department stores and two abandoned police stations on notable occasions. It was the department store shit that got him married, both to the job and his now-wife, Gretch Summerdown, Nate Comley, who was a fat and miserable thing that hoarded shine and silk like a white trash dragon. He'd put three miscarriages and a runaway son on her in 20 years, all of which she blamed on him, said he was too flighty and light-footed, and that gnawed away at his seed, made it rot before it even touched the soil, 
and then made the soil rot still so that it ruined her. He patted his chest, hunting for the cigarette lighter. Gretch was in a mood of late, now that her last menses had come and gone. And though the hot flashes and night terrors had faded, their home was like a field with a storm that just wouldn't pass. She was spiteful, is what it was. Lightly, with subtlety, but spiteful all the same. She knew he wasn't too gentleman to hit her if she got to carrying on the way Samuel's wife did, but that only kept her to more lowly tactics. She was hateful, is what it was. He patted his chest again, this time fingering each pocket for the lighter. Goddamn thing. Where the hell did it go? Clint didn't let himself drink like his fool of a father. That was behind him. Well, he'd had a few years as a drunk, wandering around New England and taking odd jobs and bad lickings in this bar and that. He'd cleaned up and started scrapping and gave Gretch a dusty fur stole he pulled from a broken department storefront in the latter days of the Depression. She'd cried and said it was the nicest thing anybody had ever done for her and paid him back with a blowjob and 20 years of shit-ass marriage. He'd made his way around the truck, full-on giving up on finding the lighter but walking with the cigarette dangling out his mouth all the same. All of what made up Clint's summer down seemed to dangle. He was a beanpole of a man, even years now past the guttering depression that had rotted the country hollow like a cancer. His clothes hung off him, a white cotton shirt run brown from years of sweat and washing. A pair of blue suspender overalls that were only blue now at the seams of the pockets, which for some reason resisted becoming gray and black and sun-faded white like the rest of his filthy work uniform. Something in those overalls had betrayed him and lost his lighter, and now he was out in the stinking, sweating heart of the main countryside without a smoke, which was about the worst it got for Clint Summerdown. But the old whatever on the side of the road might make up for it. Might even. Hope beyond hope. Be enough for a snaggletoothed blowjob from old Gretch tonight, if he brought it home and she was keen on it. It was a lovely old whatever, if worn. He wiped the dust off the varnish, revealing a cherry-stained top board only slightly marked here and there by use. He thumbed the carved embellishments that ran the rim of the top board and then squatted, pawing open the one big cabinet on the left and the three little drawers on the right. The drawers were empty, slid nicely on their wooden tracks. He took one out and turned it around, looking over the wood in the back before slotting the thing away. Bedbugs were always a concern picking up old house shit. Half the time it was why it was set out in the first place. Clint pushed the big cabinet on the left all the way open, looking into the guts of the thing and even sticking his head inside to do so. He had to hold his old blue denim cap to his scant head of hair to keep it from falling off. There was nothing to see inside but a series of little names and initials and dates carved into the left cabinet door. They read like so. Dunning, 83. Vittle, 99. Ballantyne, 20. Ballantyne, 22. Cosell, 28. Freeman, 35. Mud, 35. Mud, 36. Vickers, 48. 
Clint rolled the cigarette left and right between his lips, running his thumb over the names Dunning and Vittle and the dates carved to the right of them. The wood, a soft, pinkish sort of wood that wasn't stained the same as the top board or even its own front side, turned dark from the wetness of Clint's finger and then quickly dried. He didn't think Gretch would much mind the marks. She didn't expect anything he brought her to be new or even very fresh. Still, it might put her off the idea of some good head. Or give her an excuse to be stingy. He sighed and pushed himself up, using the top board for support and feeling something odd and metallic in his palm as he did so. He stumbled. The thing slid with a whoosh over the slick top board and almost dropped him on his ass and he was surprised to find the thing in question was his lighter. He turned it over and over again, noting all the little dents and scratches that marked it as his own. Clint remembered the cigarette in his mouth and lit it, taking a long drag and looking over the piece of furniture. He figured it wouldn't be too much to lift, though there was the remaining question of how it had gotten there. The closest house he could see was a hollow-eyed, clapboard thing buried up underneath the trees and vines a good hike out from the road. Now, when he stepped around the whatever, he found mud and gravel ruts buried in the thicket of wild grass that dominated the field between him and the distant house. He stood smoking a moment longer, shielding his eyes from the sun and staring at the house out there. It was an ugly, two-story thing that maybe nobody lived in anymore, but you never knew out here. Even if it wasn't a real family out there, it might be drifters or hopheads or who knows what else settled up in the place. The longer he looked, the more he felt something in the shadowed, broken eyes of the house looking back. Clint spat and stubbed out the cigarette on the side of the road and cursed. Well, fuck me, he said aloud. The first words he'd maybe spoken all day. There wasn't always a reason to talk to Gretch in the morning if she were even awake. There, on the side of the thing opposite his truck, somebody had carved two words deep into the smooth sidewall varnish. Don't want. He rolled his eyes and kicked the whatever lightly with the toe of his boot. Who fucking would? He carved all that into the side of it. He muttered. Then he crossed his arms and sighed and shot a black look at the maybe empty house buried in the vines and tree limbs. If anybody were looking back at him, he wanted them to know how displeased he was. That passed, of course, and left Clint with the tasks of packing the thing and leaving. He did so without much fuss or difficulty, though he heard something odd when he finally got it settled in the back of the truck. An ugly rattling like the whole bottom shelf was full of wooden dice. Clint gave the thing a look and then glanced at the house again and then back down the road. It was August, but there were chill winds blowing around on this dust road. Coming storms, maybe. He pulled the drawer out a bit and peeked inside. Then he pulled it free with a curse and turned it over, dumping most of a small animal skeleton into the road. You motherfuck! He said, turning to the whatever and pulling the rest of the drawers all the way out. There was nothing else inside it. Nothing he could find, at least. He sighed and shoved the drawers back into place, tying the thing down and hoping all this work was worth a shot at Gretch's snaggletooth maw. 
He figured it was, and, if anything, he didn't have much else to look forward to. Gretch was busy with the kitchen television when Clint got home that night. She was basically where he'd left her, sat up in an easy chair he'd pulled from a burned-down nightclub in the city a few years back. The thing was slightly singed and stank like shit up until that spring, but it had been Gretch's favorite seat since Clint had brought the thing home. If she ended up loving the whatever he'd brought home, she might shuffle her mass out of the thing and kneel on the floor, letting him sit down with his trousers off before she got to work. If she only just liked it, then she'd have him unzip right where he was standing, going to work on him with one eye still cocked toward the television. He honestly didn't know how she spent so much time with the damn things. They were, like everything else in their home, scavenged from this place or that. The sudden question he'd picked up out in front of some dead lawyer's office in the weeks after the man met his maker. To him, the picture was no better than staring into a snowstorm, but Gretch didn't like to take her damn eyes off the thing for a second if she could help it. If they were to have a conversation, they would have to wait until the little advertising blocks or the end of whatever programming. And even then, the conversation would be first about whatever she was watching. Sometimes he'd completely forget what he was even after before she got done talking. Those distractions served his purpose, though. He intended to haul the whatever into the living room and set it up so she couldn't see the words marring the left side. He'd gotten it against the wall when he heard her holler from the kitchen. Who's that? She asked, her voice a little light. It's me. Clint replied. She didn't say anything back, just yawned. He could hear something like circus music coming from the kitchen set's tinny speakers. Hey now, Gretch, he said, walking around so he could see her. A wall of fake brown wood paneling, pulled plank by plank from a defunct steakhouse, separated the living room from the kitchen. The only other room was their bedroom, through the door to his right. She waved a hand at him and tisked. He stood patiently, smoking a cigarette until the picture fuzzed out from some cackling man in an office to light piano music advertising a different brand than what he smoked. She waved him forward. I thought you were the paper boy come for collections, she said with a sigh. I don't know how that'd be. You don't have a key to this house, Clint said. You don't get up to let anybody in anyhow. I wish it were the paper boy then. How about that? She said, looking at him. The best he got from this angle was a single eye. She was too big to move the top of herself in that chair. Her shoulders were like whole ham hocks and got in the way. What do you want with that boy? I think he's pretty, she said, glancing back at the television. It was still cigarettes. The television would talk about cigarettes for five minutes straight sometimes, which was about four minutes too long to talk about anything, in Clint's opinion, much less cigarettes. 
and everybody he knew smoked. Or was so sickened by the smell of it, they wouldn't share the same space as him while he partook. That's a foul thing to say about it, boy, Clint said, also looking at the television. You say a boy's handsome, or strong-looking, maybe. You say he's pretty, and people think you or him got something wrong going on. I say he's pretty, Gretch said, pouting. If I want to say it like that, and I mean it, that's how I'll say it. What the hell do you want, anyway? I got something for you. What's that? Well, you have to come and see, Clint said. He puffed himself up some, maybe or maybe not pushing his hips forward at her as he did so. Oh, well, I... She gave him a look that was like a bunch of little looks at once. In the mood for something, maybe. But maybe not something he had. But then again, maybe he did have it and it would scratch some little itch. But also, and this he was sure of, she was bored. By him or by her television or by something more integral to herself. Bored by herself. She licked her lips and looked at the television and then him and then the television again. It was enough to drive him crazy. But then she waved her hand at him, twice, hard, and set her hands as so to stand up. He got in place beside and then behind her as she leveraged up onto the elephant stumps her eating had made of her feet. Then she was thumping and panting into the living room and falling into the couch set beside the front door. Honey-colored light shone through the knit yellow curtains behind her. Oh, Lord. Oh, God, she said, panting and dabbing at her forehead. Clint watched her through her routine behind his veil of cigarette smoke. She made a big deal of moving so he wouldn't often ask it of her, a desire he mostly obliged. She finished her heaving and hawing and settled into a whole other mood entirely, pulling her thumb and forefinger together in a ring and splaying out the rest of her fingers so she could wiggle them. This was her impression of a rich woman, which she did any time Clint brought her something. It had made him cringe some in the early years of their relationship, but he'd gotten used to it over the years, mostly because it preceded that most hallowed blowjob. Now, he knew she'd already seen what it was he'd brought in. Gretch's eyes were sharp and quick and greedy. But this whole show play was as much a part of the interaction to come as actually receiving the item in question. She made a production of looking at every last little thing in the room, fingers up in rings and splayed and wriggling, saying, oh no, this isn't new. Oh no, not this. Oh no, this is a pretty thing, but it's not new. Clint chased his cherry with a second cigarette, continued smoking all through the ordeal, which is how he felt about it. Probably, maybe, she thought it was cute or droll. That's a television word she picked up and, to his chagrin, never dropped. Droll. He fucking hated every second of it, but if he interrupted, she'd get huffy and then there went the night. Finally, she set her eyes on the whatever and gasped. Oh, a new credenza? She asked, giving him a bright look. So that's what the thing is called. 
he thought to himself. Yes, ma'am, he said. Well, haven't you been a good boy? She said. He didn't like that phrase, but let it pass. Is that for me? It's so pretty. Yes, ma'am, he said. Oh, then why don't you come over here? She said, licking her lips. He felt his neck get hot. You need to be rewarded for bringing me something so nice. He walked over, unhitching his coveralls. He was more than ready for what was to come, his little pecker jutting out at her like a finger. She took it and got to work. You're a good boy, aren't you? She asked while she was working on him. He didn't want her to talk, but she did sometimes. He tried to just lean back and focus on the feel. You bring me the paper every day, but now you go and do this. The hell? Clint asked. He tried to back up, but she held him in place. She wasn't strong, but she was heavy as all hell. You better stay where I can get to you, little boy. She continued on. He felt sick. No, now you cut that out, he said. His excitement bled out and he went soft on her tongue. God damn it, you, I was having fun, Gretch said, pushing him away and wiping her mouth. Not the hell, not like that, he said. You were talking to me like I'm a little boy. He shivered, feeling something like the static from Gretch's television set lacing his brain. You don't. You can't ever talk about a little boy like that. Yes, I can. If I'm just playing with you, Gretch said. It was a sentence that maybe should have sounded light, but came off more as a warning. No, you cannot, woman, he said, pointing at her. I'm warning you. Warning me? She shouted, swiping at him. She grabbed a fistful of his coveralls and pulled him toward her face, hard. He managed to stay back far enough that her nasty, snaggled teeth clacked together harmlessly, inches from their target. He had to smack her in the face to get her to let him go. You motherfucker! She shouted. He didn't say anything back to her, just stepped out through the front door to finish his cigarette. He heard her thump her way up off the couch and back toward the kitchen. Something crashed and he took a deep breath, standing still on the porch and biting his lip between puffs of the cigarette. She thumped to the front of the house and threw open the door. Make yourself useful and find that fucking stray you keep feeding. It's been making some sort of awful racket behind the house all day. She said. He didn't turn around to look at her. It'd be dangerous to give her his back like this inside the house. But Gretch didn't go outside, so he was plenty safe. You fucking idiot, she finally said, slamming the door and retreating inside. So that was that for the night. He cursed under his breath and had another smoke, walking around the side of the house and thinking about having himself a beer when he went in. Gretch must have gotten to him because his brain still felt all snowy like the television. 
little images blinking in and out of his head. Worst of all was the thought of Gretch with that paper boy in the house. He was a maybe 13, 14-year-old bit of scrawny blonde fluff that shot through the neighborhood before even Clint was up, much less Gretch. She'd only known him from collections, which he probably did after the end of the school day. He thought of her coaxing that boy inside. Leave the money on the table right there. Yeah. And then, then, just images. Gretch's nasty teeth and that boy's ecstatic face. Then pain in his eyes. Confusion. Blood. Clint stumbled and had to claw at the rough clapboard side of his home to keep from falling. A wave of nausea hit him and he did fall, collapsing onto his shoulder and finding himself suddenly deaf save a ringing in his ears. A second later he could feel his limbs again, an unfamiliar fuzz bleeding out of them. Then he was pushing himself up onto his knees and slapping around for his cigarette in the half-dead grass. He found it on a patch of dirt, plopping it into his mouth and burning the side of his little finger in the process. He was only slightly alarmed to see the blood on the back of his hand when he stood, run off from a nosebleed that had started and stopped before he noticed. The ringing in his ears faded into the soft, wretched mules of a cat in the bushes behind his house. It was his cat, or at least the cat he thought of as his. It was a scrap of a thing that lived off birds and gutter water, but occasionally Clint would bring it bits of this or that and sit on his haunches while the little orange thing ate. It would let him pet it, and Clint would enjoy that while it lasted, which was never very long. It lived in the bushes back there, but also a few other places. It had bachelor's nests set up all along their mostly empty rural neighborhood behind the gas station. In one of his most secret moments, Clint had found the cat sleeping on the sun-warmed hood of his truck one spring morning, and had put off his scrap runs for an hour while he just smoked and watched the little fucker sleep. Now he could hear the cat, and it was for sure hurt or something like that. But he couldn't see it, and he knew better than to try reaching into the snarl of limbs and leaves that made up the creature's shelter. He'd come back with a bit hand, sure as anything. Hey there, Clint, called a voice from the road. Clint turned to see McGuire, that is, Thomas McGuire, who everybody else just called McGuire, standing at the roadside. Yeah, Clint said looking back at the bush one last time and then standing to meet McGuire. The man nodded at him, though he looked somewhat concerned. He pointed at Clint's face. You take a spill there? He asked. No, Clint replied. Came down with a nosebleed and a light head there in the side yard. He shrugged. Nothing doing about it. He spit in his hand and wiped at his face feeling the short whiskers over his lip burning his palm. Scone? McGuire gave him an apprising look and then nodded. Seems so, he said. Okay then, Clint said. They shared a few minutes together, mostly talking about McGuire's work at the paint factory, which was all bad news. That job was the last thing the old widower had going for him and he made it a point to note that once it was gone, 
He'd probably be soon to follow it. I'll be here with Jean Ann again, which would be nice, he said. They both nodded. Jean Ann was a good woman, and her loss had struck McGuire down to his soul. What both men thought, neither said aloud, was that it would be better, maybe, if Gretch and Clint didn't end up going to the same place after the end. Clint had lapsed in his Methodism, however, and he feared the worst, even if he was resigned to it. Boy, I'd do for a beer, McGuire said, and Clint agreed. He meant to say just as much, but only managed to gutter a grunt of pain. Something like an ice cream headache had nearly struck him blind in an instant. It was over as soon as it had come, replaced by a steadily rising snow that settled over his brain, the way the dust had fallen over that, whatever. The credenza. Through the snow came the image of a couple cold beers, tabs popped open and both of them sitting on fresh paper bar coasters. Oh, that's not good, McGuire said, pointing at Clint. You ain't got the money for a doctor neither, do you? What's that? Your nose is bleeding again, man. McGuire said. You looked like you were in the middle of a sneeze and some blood came out. How's that? I said you looked like you were about to sneeze and some blood came out. McGuire repeated. He pulled a rag, not a handkerchief, but a greasy and paint-spattered shop rag, out of his pocket and gave it to Clint. I don't need that back. Just as well, Clint muttered looking at the thing. It had come off his face with enough blood on it to shine in the dim light of the setting autumn sun. Lord. Yeah, McGuire said, clearing his throat. Uh, I'm going to grab a couple cold ones. Yeah, Clint said. McGuire nodded and pretended not to see the fear in the other man's eyes. All sorts of ways to go. Quick, painful, slow. Bleeding and headaches, though. It could be one of those aneurysms that dropped men like sacks of potatoes in fields and on press lines and left them as stone-cold dead as the floor they struck. If something happened to Clint in the next few moments, Gretch might not notice for days. They left all that unspoken between them, and Clint went inside for a set of cores and was surprised to find two waiting for him on the whatever the credenza. He gave them a long, confused look that was ended by a series of thuds in the bedroom, a noise he recognized as Gretch retreating to bed. He looked around the room and saw the curtain was slightly ajar. He could see McGuire standing out on the front lawn and staring off into the sky. Had Gretch decided to make good after her abhorrent behavior? It wouldn't be characteristic of her but her fascination with that child had been unexpected as well. Her enjoyments had never tilted in odd directions as far as he knew, or at least, she'd never shared it with him. All that made him think of his son, gone now eight years and maybe, hopefully, God willing, twenty years old and alive somewhere out there. He didn't even want to think the boy's name aloud in his head. It all hurt too much. That same snow from earlier crunched in his mind, but nothing came of it. No weakness. No blood. 
He took a sip of the beer closest to him on the credenza. It was delicious. He shouted a thanks to Gretch and received nothing in return, which was as much as he'd expected. Clint moved to pick up the other beer and noticed the door to the large cabinet was hanging open by his leg. He leaned over close to it and was struck by an oddity of color, a shine, glimmering in the almost non-existent light of his living room. Clint pushed the cabinet fully open and found the entire inside of the door, the one with the names carved into it was slicked top to bottom with some thick liquid. The room smelled suddenly like copper. Bad enough he had to lick his lips and make sure his nose wasn't bleeding again. It wasn't. He reached forward and dabbed his fingers in the stuff, slowly, moving in a line down the list of names and dates. When he pulled it back to his face, the stuff was unmistakable. Blood. He shuddered and looked back at the door, wondering how that might have happened, if Gretch might have somehow hurt herself. But when he looked back at the door, only the pale, pinkish wood and the names remained. He touched his thumb to his forefinger and felt only skin, saw only skin. When he finally mustered up the gumption to look. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The evening came and went. Clint and McGuire both getting more drunk than they first planned. As it was, neither of them had anything to do or were beholden to anybody. And once they finished their first, the tenth came sooner than expected. It was more beer, in fact, than Clint thought he'd had in the house. But there was no mistaking the count of the cans when McGuire finally stumbled off the lawn and back toward home. 
the older man had begun to complain of a bout of stomach illness and said he felt more lightheaded than he should given they were drinking beer and not liquor, which was his preference. About half of what they drank had been set out on that whatever, the credenza, a fact Clint decided against sharing with McGuire. Nobody in particular liked or trusted Gretch, McGuire included, and Clint had told him he'd had an argument with her earlier, if not what about. Clint was feeling some of that same stomach illness coming on and was slightly concerned Gretch might have been doping her apology beers. Usually, she'd put in a few droplets of some cleaning agent when she wanted to taint his food, which she'd done a few times when their son had run off. She hadn't been so fat then and had cooked more, which put her in a position to do so. He'd slapped her up and down the kitchen once he finally caught her and that put an end to that. She'd stopped cooking and moving, for good, that same week. He drifted out of his last flickering sober moments and into sleep the way it happened sometimes when he got too drunk. Gretch was there in his dreams, her great sheets of fat floating loose and naked just as she herself floated, hung up in the air like a side of beef, though he could see no hook. Her eyes were white pockets of dreamy snow, the television static. She opened her mouth and he could see it there too, flowing out and covering him. The light made shadows of their house that beat and pulsed like a jittering electric heart. He followed her to the kitchen. Her toes dragged just over the linoleum, ragged nails catching in the gaps between the poorly laid panels and popping and stuttering themselves free. Something was crying. Something was crying. It was laid up in a ball right there in front of the stove. The stove was dusty because they didn't use it anymore. Didn't need to. That little thing was crying. Its limbs were sticks all jumbled together and hoisted up into a knobbed and quivering torso. It had bad hair. Bald man's hair. That lay about its head like fiberglass spalling at the insulation plant. That insulation would cut you if you touched it. Cut your lungs if you breathed it. It'd cut your lungs. That boy'd cut you up if you touched him. That hair. It was that thin, bald man's hair. Gretch floated up and pulled her flaps of leg meat apart, pouring down a deluge of filth and blood onto the creatures squalling on their kitchen floor. The stove was dusty. Nobody used the damn thing anymore. Nobody cleaned it. That thing on the floor squalled up like a storm, made noises like trees getting ripped down by the wind. Gretch didn't say anything, didn't move, just hung up there like a slab of something ripe and half-rotten, holding her legs apart. The thing unfurled itself, giving Clint a good look at its face. There wasn't much to see, just flat, white flesh and a gummy mouth set up with nasty little fish teeth and all of them thin and white-yellow, like fingernail clippings. It groped at Gretch and finally got its hand around her ankle, its grip slipping a few times before its flat, brownish fingernails got a good hook in her skin. Then it was climbing, climbing and squalling and digging. It pushed itself up past where Clint could see and Gretch's body started hitching and bucking. But she didn't make any noise. None at all. Then all he could see was the thing's dangling legs, 
its fat little tapeworm of a cock slicked into place along its thigh by what had come out of Gretch. Clint woke up then, sitting up in bed and mumbling to himself. He touched his face and rubbed his shoulders, touched his face. His head ached so bad it felt like somebody had scooped a chunk of that gray stuff out from behind his eyeball, leaving a little cavity the eye might roll back into, get sucked into, maybe, the way the void in a storm drain sometimes sucked down animals and little kids and that. Gritch, he muttered. It was hard to tell if he was trying to find her or just so run over by the thought of her he had to say her name. He wandered out into the hall, naked but for his drawers and a tattered undershirt he didn't remember putting on the night before. The television was going in the kitchen, but he didn't want to see Gretsch, so he went to the bathroom, relieving himself and then shouting some when he saw all of the blood on his shirt. His nose had bled out over his chest all night long, it seemed, leaving a brown fan of crusted scab on his shirt and his throat. He got a shower without addressing that issue to himself or his wife. He hadn't come to terms with dying yet, and hoped that wasn't what might be coming, though he figured if he was soon to meet the Reaper, it might be about time anyhow. As if that shadowed man had heard him, the walls spun around him and he almost fell. He could taste the blood on his tongue and he knew his nose was bleeding again. Lord, he whispered to himself needing that word at least to give him the strength to stand. He had to clean himself again, but it didn't take as long this time. The blood was fresh. He walked naked into the living room, finding Gretsch on the couch instead of the kitchen. The television was on in there, but his wife was on the living room couch for some reason. He even leaned in to double-check. Gretsch gave him a worried look, Though not worried for him, he knew, when he stepped back into the living room. She jammed her left hand over the side of the couch soon after he'd come out of the shower and was holding it there still, her arm too fat to bend the way she needed to hide it completely. Hell are you doing in here? Clint asked. Television's on in the kitchen. Don't you worry about that, she said. Ain't you got work? Ain't you got to leave? Why'd you leave that television on in there? I said, ain't you got work? Why are you still here? He glared at her. What you got over there? He asked. In your hand there. Nothing, she said. Ain't you got work? You quit with that. He replied taking a step forward. You quit with that. She snapped back at him, pointing at his nakedness. Why don't you go get dressed, you you fucking bum? Nobody here wants to see that. You answer my question, Gritch, he said, pointing at her now. You get some pants on and I'll talk to you all day, she said. But I ain't having no conversations with a grown man has his willy hanging out like that. Have some respect for yourself. This is my goddamn home, woman! He yelled. The windows rattled in their panes and continued to ring a bit for a while after. I'll well be naked if I want now. What are you doing here? What's going on? 
She pursed her lips and raised her chin at him, her arm rubbing against the knit arm of the couch as she tried to push it further back. He took a step closer and she raised her free hand, baring her unkempt nails at him like a cat, which made Clint pause. She wasn't above gelding him if he crossed her and she could catch hold of him. Clint looked around the room and paused, noticing something said on the credenza thing he brought home the day before. He looked at it and then at Gretch. Her eyes darted quickly between her husband and the thing she'd seen. A picture in an ornate silver frame unlike anything they had in the house. He gave up on her and went to the credenza. No, Clint, that's not yours! She shouted. You leave that alone! What the fuck is this? He said under his breath, picking the thing up though he didn't want to touch it. It was a photo of the paper boy in a bedroom. Maybe his bedroom. Asleep and naked as a jaybird. Clint's eyes made it down to the boy's sad-looking little pecker and then turned the picture away. What the fuck is this? He all but screamed, not looking at Gretch or the picture, looking instead at some point under his house, in the dirt beneath the shit-ass side lawn. He imagined that cold earth on his face quite suddenly, but almost as soon came a feeling like fire. A bucket full of fire and a snowstorm, and him kneeling on that cold earth, committing this nightmarish picture, this abomination to the flames. There was an electric sort of pop, a crunching noise that shook the house, though Clint could tell it was coming from the kitchen. He smelled fire and snapped back out of his little pocket reality, that cold day in the snow by the fire, but not all the way out. The fire remained. He could feel it. Then he could see it, sitting on the credenza in front of him, that same bucket from his daydream, filled with the same tall, guttering fire. Without thinking, he tossed the picture into the thing. The frame and picture caught before they even crossed beneath the rim of the bucket. Black smoke billowed up from the bucket's mouth and filled the house, forcing Clint to retreat and open the windows. He almost didn't dodge Gretch's fat fist swiping at his genitals. He bucked his hips back out of the way and then cracked her on the side of the head with his knuckles. A closed fist. Oh, you bastard! She hissed. He stared at her, leaning over with both fists balled at his sides. His own middle-aged man's pecker had shriveled up like a little mushroom to hide in the thatch of black hair between his legs. He hit her, open-handed, on the back of the head like a misbehaving dog, doing it again and again until she pulled her hidden hand from behind the couch to cover her scalp. What in the hell are those? He hissed through his teeth, swiping at the fistful of little papers she'd kept hidden from him. No, no, you fucker! Those are mine! Mine! She screamed. He grabbed her fist with both hands and was clawing at her fingers to get at the things. Both her hands were over her head and clasped tightly together, like she was praying. He managed to get one hand loose and then the other. She slapped furiously at him and then grabbed his buttocks digging her nails into his flesh at the same time he managed to get the little papers free. Then he stumbled, and she managed to grab hold of his prick, or more like all the area around it, digging her nails in there just the same. 
Clint howled and tried to backpedal, but Gretch held fast. Let me go! He screamed. You give them back, I'll rip your fucking cock off, you miserable shit! The pain was more intense than just about anything Clint had ever experienced. He could imagine her actually ripping it free if he didn't act soon, so he tossed the papers behind him and started punching her like she were a man. To her credit, or maybe as a mark against him, she weathered his blows without so much as blocking until his knuckles split the skin of her forehead wide open. Some deeper damage must have been done as well, because she went slack as a bag of shit and rolled back into her usual position. Clint fell away from his wife, gripping his bleeding pubis and curling up around it. Now that he was free of her, he could feel that injury pulsing and oozing. He lay on his side, staring at her as she wriggled in her seat, eyes fluttering and mouth working out noises like some pagan idol muttering in tongues. Her palms lay face up on her lap, some of her nails missing and every finger and much of her palm stained with his blood. Clint realized he was weeping, though he knew not what for. He stayed on his side, craning his neck to look for the papers and finding one of them not too far from his face. He dragged it close and looked at it, howling with rage and disgust when he saw what it showed and trying to crush the thing into nothing when he saw what it showed and trying to die. Trying to just curl up and die like an earthworm, a worm, a filthy worm baking in the sun when he saw what it showed. His own little boy, run off now over a decade, face down like a dog and naked on the kitchen floor. Clint curled up and screamed, biting his knuckles and then trying to rip the paper apart with his teeth. But it wouldn't tear, wouldn't even bend. He looked to the bucket of fire, the bucket that had popped into existence as though it had always been there. It burned still, and he knew, in his heart, that maybe it would always burn. He committed the atrocity in his hands to the flame and then crawled around on the floor, picking up picture after picture, looking at them only as much as he had to and wishing at times that he could blind himself. He heard a banging in his kitchen, though dimly, but ignored it to continue collecting the papers, the little pictures. Clint finally stood with a great deal of effort, scraps of ash and burning ember floating around his head and home. He sobbed and held in place the bloody ruins of his cock. A new curiosity lay glimmering on the credenza. A golden needle so long and thin and sharp it seemed to just disappear at the tip. A needle that could not sew, and was of too soft a metal to be used for any real work. A needle that could blind an eye without the intended feeling a thing. Them weren't mine, Gretch said. He wheeled around, stepping back just in case she tried to haul up off the couch and tackle him. She wasn't in much condition to move, he saw. She had to cock her head sideways to fix her one still opening eye on him. Bloody spit foamed and dripped from the corner of her mouth to leave a long stain on her breast. Fuck you, Clint said. It was more of a groan than words. What even are you? 
Hungry, she said, not missing a beat. For nothing but the one thing I can't have. But those weren't mine. Her eye moved slowly to the credenza. That there gave them to me. Gave them all to me. Only what I wanted real bad. But it gave it. The needle there glimmered, and he imagined now not blinding himself, but taking that thin point to Gretch's one remaining eye. He turned on her. What do you mean, want? He asked. Pain hollowed out his voice. He could barely stand. Want? You stupid old... She hissed through her teeth. You want me to say it out loud? She opened her mouth like she was going to and he jabbed a finger at her, aiming for that single unclosed eye, thinking of the needle. You say anything, I'll kill you, he said. I I don't know that I'm all in control of myself. He looked again at the needle on the credenza. He could almost feel it in his hand. Then he heard some sort of awful hissing in the kitchen that commanded his attention. Something higher and more alarming than the television's snow static. Don't you fucking... You keep away from that thing, he said to Gretch before hobbling to the kitchen. The gas range, the entire stove, was gone. The place where it had sat wasn't merely empty, however, but warped somehow, spheroid. The cabinets beside the stove, all cheap kitchen shit prized from other people's lawns and houses, were crunched inward slightly on both sides. The wooden wall behind the stove, as well, bore a long crack down the center of the gap that ended in a series of radiant cracks in the floor. It looked, for all the world, like some great fist had snuck its fingers in around the stove and crushed it to nothing. Flexing so much in the process, it bulged out into the surrounding surfaces. The sound Clint had heard was the torn gas hose spewing natural gas into the house. He rushed over to it, taking care to not splinter up his foot in the process. He managed the shut-off valve easily enough, though there was still a slight hiss. The line was too badly damaged and he'd have to close it off for the main outside. God damn it, he said, rushing into the bedroom to dress. He'd gotten his pants and shirt on and was tying the last lace of his boots when pain blossomed in his brain. The hurt was the same as the others, though much more present. He heard dripping and then realized he'd been bent over some time. A puddle of red had grown at his feet. Clint cleaned himself with the bedsheets, not much caring about soiling them at this point, and then hobbled into the living room. He still had to hold his crotch, but the damage he'd expected wasn't so bad. Nothing important was nicked or cut so badly, but mostly just shredded up some in the first few layers of skin. He'd have to get it with the iodine later. Gretch was staring at him when he came in, like she'd been looking at the door the whole time he'd been out of the room. He turned to see another photo in a beautiful silver frame on the credenza. She looked at it and then him. Clint? Clint! 
she protested as he walked across the room. It was another picture of a boy, a disgusting picture he could barely look at. He held the frame at his side, reeling and staring at the credenza's top board and thinking on the way the dust looked gathering on it the day before. Thinking about his lighter popping up there and the bones coming out after. The little animal bones. He touched a finger to the tacky blood drying under his nose. He looked at Gretch. No, Clint, she said, staring at the photo pressed against his hip. He could barely look at the woman. He'd never really loved her. But now even touching her, even touching her to hurt her, felt unclean. He didn't like his eyes on her. Come on, you. Don't throw that away. Just let me keep one. She tilted her unsealed eye to gaze at him. It's already paid for anyway. He touched the blood under his nose, looking from her to the picture. Only the frame, though, and then at the bucket. Fire still licked upward from a white-hot base he couldn't see into the heart of, even when he took it down and set it on the floor between him and Gretch. She stared at him like a hungry animal. He dropped the picture and watched it disappear into the flame. No! Gretch said, beating her fist on her knee. I didn't even get to see it, God damn it! Where's our son? Clint asked. Run off, she said, not looking up at him. She must have felt him staring because she repeated herself, though lower. Run off. Clint ground his teeth and turned to grab the credenza and drag it outside with him. Maybe he'd even just drop it back where he'd found it, though he didn't know what that would accomplish. To his surprise, he couldn't so much as budge the thing. It was completely full. He could hear something heavy rattling around inside it. Gretch stared at him as he leaned down to open the closet door, giving him a look maybe like a fox because a hen through the chicken wire. You keep your thoughts to yourself, he said. I ain't doing nothing. She spat back at him, though her words were soft, hesitant. You heard me, he mumbled, turning back to the credenza. He opened the door to the big closet and had to jump back to keep 200 pounds of twisted metal from landing on his foot. Lord Christ, he said, hopping back and nearly stumbling into the still-burning can. It was his stove. He could see lumps of twisted range guard in the wire grating from the racks. The handle for the stove door popped loose of the wreckage and rose like a trampled blade of grass. Clint looked at the wad of metal and rolled it away so that it bumped against Gretch. She hissed and spat at him, but he paid her no mind. There was something more pressing to see inside the cabinet. Something more awful. Something almost recognizable. A lump of grayish pulp sliding like bloody snot down the inside of the lightly pink wooden door. He touched his finger to it and shivers ran up and down his spine. Then the wood of the cabinet door absorbed it with a noise like swamp water getting sucked through a sieve. Clint fell back on his ass. My God, he said. The only other noises in the room were the endless fire and Gretch's snotty, 
beating, labored breathing. Clint reached out and ran his thumb over the new carvings on the inside of the door. Summer down. 53. Gretch screamed at him the whole time he was dragging the credenza out of the house. God alone knew what he might do with the thing. But so long as it was out back and away from Gretch, she couldn't put it to the same evils. And she was too fat and too lazy to make the long walk through the scrap heaps behind their home where he'd hid it. Even Clint had trouble making it all the way to the back of the property, grown over as it was with weeds and tall grass that made a minefield of all the little bits of muffler and cable between the broken pallets he'd dropped there. Today, especially, he felt twenty years older. Between the very obvious harm Gretch had done him, he was still burning where her nails had got him, and the mysterious violence done to him by the goddamn credenza. Perhaps he was. He dropped the thing at the back of the stacks against the clapped-together wooden fence he'd made from old wooden doors and wired-up bits of automobile skin. There were two ten-foot heaps of shit there he managed to wedge it between. The piles in question were made of things he couldn't sell, and likely nobody'd want that came along with the more valuable scraps. Children's dolls from old dressers, broken suitcases and rotten bags he found in the backs of old cars. Shit. People shit, the most useless kind of all. He left the credenza there for a while, looking at it not quite knowing what to do. He'd snatched it up quick and forgotten to do something with the golden needle that had popped up there. The thing must have rolled off somewhere, as it was gone now. No doing trying to find it, though he half expected Gretch would be waiting just inside the door to put it in his ear. Right in my damn brain, he thought to himself, rubbing at the now unending ice cream headache going off behind his eye. Clint shut off the gas with a wrench from his truck, racking his brain on what he should do about the thing. Clearly, he couldn't let Gretch around it, nor, apparently, could he let her around children anymore. Thankfully, the neighborhood they lived in was broad and mostly empty, Utterly devoid of children, in fact. Save for that hapless paper boy she'd taken such a sickening shine to. He felt bile rise in his throat. Clint had to steady himself against the side of his home to keep from falling in his own vomit. He kept puking, in fact. Even after he thought he'd gotten all of what was in his stomach up and out. What still came was thin, yellow nastiness followed by a stream of noxious brown and black foulness full of hard, sharp pebbles. He looked at this for a long time before thinking, for no reason he could put his finger on, of his little pet stray living in the nearby bush. He was deathly afraid for the poor thing, in fact, though he couldn't understand why. His stomach and his head were reeling, just bending over made his vision thin around the edges until he felt like he was looking down a well. 
he found the cat just a few inches from where he normally fed it. It was dead, eyes already caved in by the ants that had found it. Clint grabbed it up anyway, and the noise that came out his throat when he did so was unlike anything he'd heard in his life, much less a sound he thought himself capable of making. The cat was completely limp, save for its skull and the ends of its arms. All of its bones were gone, not broken or eaten away, but simply gone. He could feel the lumps of its organs and the thin wires of its muscles, but nothing else. Little cuts in the ground and a fat, flat swath of pushed-down dirt showed where it had dragged itself from after this had happened to it. There was no blood, no cuts, just missing bones. The thing had been mewling, begging for death or maybe answers, just the day before. The ants might have even gotten to it while it was still alive. Maybe even they had killed it. Clint lay the poor thing on the ground and dug handfuls of dirt out from beneath the bush to cover it. It was a piss-poor funeral, but better than Clint expected he might eventually get. He didn't bother talking to Gretch again before he left. Didn't even want to, in fact. He couldn't shake the memory of the bones that had fallen out of the credenza when he'd hoisted it into the back of the truck the day before just after he'd found his lighter atop the thing. It made him worried for McGuire, who'd been drinking those beers along with him. Just last night, he'd lived in a world where Gretch was still nothing more than an eating, shitting, spite-filled blowjob machine. All those beers, all that blood when he'd opened the cabinet at the beginning of the night. The bones and the boneless cat, the stove, the pictures, the bleeding and the headaches... McGuire only lived a quarter mile, two houses that is, down the road, but Clint still broke the speed limit by about double heading to his house. It was all bad when he got there. He shut the truck down, just sitting in the dusty ruts of McGuire's driveway and looking at the boots and legs laying out McGuire's front door. It was the man's shoes, no doubt about it, and the same paint-splattered jeans he'd been wearing the night before. Clint ground his teeth and got out the door, looking up and down the quiet, tree-shaded bit of road leading up the hill back to his house and downhill out to the highway. The fields out there shone gold and green in the sun, but it was all dark up here by McGuire's house. The trees saw to that same as the mood of the day itself. He walked up to the porch. McGuire had fallen face down. Blood, crusted over and flecked with flies, had dried in a broad fan around his face. His arms were bent at the elbow, leaving his hands curled up so the fingers were touching the wrists by his shoulders. Clint whispered some half-assed missives to God and then flipped what might be his only living friend over on his back. The man's shirt was undone, which showed the worst of it. There was nothing left of his bowels. The man's pudge and his meager stomach muscles were sucked inward so deep Clint could see the impression of the man's spine through the front of his belly. McGuire had died knowing at least some of what had been done to him. The buttons on the shirt had been meticulously unbuttoned, not ripped away. 
stubby little nail marks showed where McGuire had clawed at himself, maybe going a touch crazy from pain toward the end. I'm so sorry, McGuire, Clint said, moving around McGuire to grab the man under his shoulders. He eventually got him up onto the couch, grimacing some when he realized McGuire had messed himself in death, and what came out of him was now staining the knit blanket laying on the cushions. It was one of the last things McGuire's wife had made before she died. I hope you tell her sorry for me, old man. Clint said, rubbing the worsening headache behind his eyes. He took the phone off the cradle and dialed 911. Hello? Clint asked when the woman on the other end of the line announced herself. She repeated that he had reached the Somerset County Sheriff's Department and asked if there was an emergency. No, uh, this is Clint Summerdown, he said. Oh, hello, Mr. Summerdown. The woman replied. Her voice was vaguely familiar. Is there some trouble with your wife again? No, no. Uh, he cleared his throat. I'm at Thomas McGuire's house. He's dead. No rush to get out here, I'm pretty sure of it, but he's gone, yeah. The woman asked him a barrage of questions, most of which he dodged. No, that's... Um, I've got some places to be, but I'll leave him here on the couch and lock the front door with his keys. They'll be under the bush side of the stairs, yeah. Just come in and he's right here. I gotta go. She tried to keep asking questions, but he hung up. By the time the sheriff's deputies and the ambulance got there, he was already 16 miles out and searching the same dusty outroads he'd traveled the day before. It took him maybe half an hour to find the same spot, but he did, pulling up beside the grass hidden ruts and stepping out of the truck. Another five or so minutes put him in front of the house there, the eyeless and haunted thing he'd seen the day previous. It loomed over him, crooked enough on its foundations the entire artifice seemed ready to collapse with a sigh into the earth and disappear forever. He let himself in through the unlocked and partially destroyed front door, it fell off its hinges a second later and the glass panes blew to pieces against the porch, making him jump near out of his skin. He didn't know what he was looking for, but found it anyway. The house was a maelstrom of damage and disorder. Holes both great and small had been torn away from every surface, even from chunks of the house's supports. The home had been built well, he could tell, but that damage was irreparable and had begun the slow and inevitable collapse that would eventually flatten the place. More obvious, however, were the words carved here and there into the plaster walls, gouged into the floorboards, painted with God knows what onto the stone mantelpiece. Don't. Want. The same admonition that had been cut into the flesh of the credenza thing left out on the road in front of this place rendered and repeated ad infinitum on every marble surface. Still, it wasn't enough. It wasn't an answer, only another question. And so Clint moved deeper into the house. 
through a kitchen strewn with crumpled cooking utensils and a dozen neatly arranged knives, all of different sizes and utility, and each to the letter dulled shiny along its edge. Through a small office or library, where all the books were either blank or pageless and laying in untitled piles and drifts against the walls. The desk in there was carved up the same way as the rest of the home. Don't want. This time it was not a great, ugly cutting, but rather a series of maybe hundreds of neat little repetitions done over and over so that the surface looked intentionally patterned. The downstairs was overwhelming, but ultimately pointless. A maelstrom, yes, but like any storm, there was no greater meaning to it than its own wrathful exhibitions. There was nothing beyond the destruction but the undestroyed. Odd little baubles or parts of the home left miraculously untouched and unblemished. A chair without a scratch or even a rent in its upholstery sat beside one ripped utterly to shreds and splinters. An ugly-looking book covered in thorny black scrawls that Clint was hesitant to touch. A doll made of plaster. He continued upstairs and found the closest thing he could to a hint at what was happening to him. To his wife. To what the odd bit of furniture was. A mostly skeletal corpse sat propped up by stacks of heavy books. Its legs splayed out in front of it. Its skull had been set atop the highest book in the pile, obscuring the title. It wore the same clothing as another headless corpse collapsed against the wall opposite it, a thing that looked almost freshly dead. The skin, at least, was an awful and bloody pink, almost like a newborn rat. Foulness pulled around the thing, crusted over and still reeking faintly of shit and blood. Clint wandered through this place almost in a dream, shuddering at everything he saw. There was more up here, some of it beyond description. Black drawings and little stencils and doors blocked as though something had locked itself inside. The last room, at the far end of the second floor, dipped precariously downward. Not a steep grade, but more by far than Clint was comfortable seeing in a house he was standing in. The room was unadorned save for a desk and a chair. On the desk was a note, hammered in place by a brass thumbtack. Clint pulled it away, feeling his balls tuck up into his stomach when the floor bounced gently underneath him, and it didn't quite rise back to where it had been. Jamie, the letter read, I've returned to find father in a worse state than I was in when I left. Mother is similarly affected, and it seems that your departure was the trigger for the worst of her most recent episodes. Or so, at least, father claims. He speaks only in shouts and whispers now, and less than half of those to me, even when I'm the only one in the room. I have little doubt that this letter will ever actually reach you, of course. Father wakes in the night and screams about sins I can only beg or imagined. Mother often rises with him and follows at his heels like a dog. All of her teeth are gone now, and so I can only assume that your earliest mistakes with the thing have failed to abuse her of the notion of using it. It has been moved from Father's study to the center of the house, beneath the fireplace now, which you might recall was where that foul little man unveiled the thing that night last November. 
There was that incident with the wine that left a stain around the legs. And God is my witness, Father, has aligned it right back into that position. To what end, I neither know nor care to know. Jamie, I hope you are not a fool. I hope to God you are not a fool, and a coward and a greedy little rat. You were a good boy as a child, and smart. Smart enough, at least, to see Father Celeste's clever traps and to understand the cruelties of Mother's pretend stupidity. They are not so decent. But I had hopes for you. I'll have gone when you arrive here, if you arrive here. I'll not say where to. Because Mother will find and read this, and I'll not have her and Father loping through the woods like animals to gather me back up. The last library, as we've said. If you're a good little boy, still, and not a greedy, ratty little animal, you'll remember. If not, here on the paper the period had grown fat from the pen being held in place. If not, then God help you. May God help you and may the memory of you be struck from me forever. Love, your sister, Marie Vickers. Clint remembered the name from the carvings inside the door of the credenza thing, but other than that, it was just more questions. This house wasn't so remote he'd never been past it, but he knew nothing about these people. Only knew one Vickers family, and that was in a different part of the state altogether. And those ones weren't the type to get up to whatever sort of nonsense had gone on in this house. Clint pulled the thumbtack free and then pressed it into place over the note, banging just a touch too hard on the desk when he did so. The shutter, it honestly wasn't that hard of a hit, passed through the desk and into the walls, the floor. It didn't seem to stop. Then the floor lurched downward beneath him, and Clint turned and booked it, almost climbing by the time he was back in the hallway. Behind him, the collapsing floor continued its slow descent into the story beneath it, a part of the house that might have been the kitchen he passed through. A nasty whine vibrated through the whole house that made Clint clap his hands over his head. It was high-pitched and tinny, ugly, a noise that felt like a nosebleed. He stumbled past the room with the corpses and steadied himself on the door jamb, freezing when he saw the headless corpse, the one still bearing most of its earthly flesh, rumbling across the ground as though it were suffering a seizure. Possibly it was just the movement in the house, at least that's what Clint hoped. But then the thing's right hand shot straight up in the air, and Clint got to running. He pushed on foot by foot, bouncing and bounding off the walls until he was through the shattered front door and a dozen paces past the stairs. When he looked back, all he saw was the same creepy house. No whining, no shaking. Nothing at all to make it different than any of the other thousands of abandoned homes out here in the country. That said, he kept his eyes on it hard the whole way back out to the road.
a sheriff's deputy Clint was somewhat familiar with, flagged him down a few miles from home. Yes, sir? Clint asked him, racking his brain for the man's name but not being able to place it. It was like the memory was just... gone. Who are you calling sir, Clint? The man asked, laughing. He leaned down into the window. A look of serious concern came over his face when Clint still failed to recognize him. Clint, it's me, Walker, the man said. Clint nodded and looked back at the road, clearing his throat. Something in his mind was spinning free, a toothless gear not quite catching. Clint, this isn't funny now. Oh, yeah, sorry about that, Walker, Clint said. It's been a long day. How can I help you? The deputy, a man in his late fifties if not a touch older, gave him an appraising look and then sighed and clicked his tongue. Um, well, uh, first, I'm sorry about Tom McGuire. The man, Walker, said. I know you and he were close and it's hard to be the one to find someone like that. Yes, sir, it was. Clint said, looking away now just in case there was anything like a tear in his eye. No matter what, that's something he couldn't abide, crying like a goose in public. Well, I'm glad you took the second to call us, he said. Um, there's some stuff I'm going to have to ask you about that in the future. Questions came up at the hospital and now the coroner's having a fuss. I don't know. Anyhow, that's not why I pulled you over. Walker rummaged around in his pocket and pulled out a copy of a photograph. Just the concept of photographs made Clint anxious, given the morning he'd had with his wife. He almost puked when he saw the boy in the photo. That's our paper boy, he said without thinking. Why you got that picture? He's missing, Walker said. He made a show of looking around as though someone might overhear this low conversation on the shoulder of a mostly undriven highway. As it was, only the clouds and the trees seemed to be eavesdropping. Cicadas buzzed in the culvert reeds. How's that? Mom came to wake him for his route, which is late on Saturdays, Walker said, giving Clint a very direct look. She found... Well, I don't even like to say this. She's in a state, I can say that for sure. They took her to the hospital and knocked her out. His father, and I don't blame him, but it's not really helpful. He's wandering around with four of his brothers in the rifle asking hard questions to everybody in the neighborhood. I'm not following, sir. Walker, I mean, Clint said. His skin was rolling and cold on the back of his neck. He shivered. His stomach ached something fierce. Bad enough, he wanted to knock the deputy out of the way and wretch on the roadside. There was something... left of the boy he ought... Uh, ought not be without, Walker said, giving that same suspicious look to the roadway. And, well, a whole lot of blood. He sighed. I said I feel bad about you and McGuire, but I can hardly even, I don't know, figure out how that woman's alive. 
I might have put my head through a window. He took a step away from Clint's truck and cracked his back. Look, Walker said, I guess I'm getting all this gossip out of the way to tell you to keep an eye out for anything odd. Anything. If you see the boy, well, all I gotta say is thank fucking God, but... But really, we just need you to call us if you see people you don't know in that, okay? He adjusted the brim of his hat and then tipped it at Clint. We're gonna do some rousting. That clutch of French-speaking darkies out there on the little communal farm north of town's first, and maybe some of the high schoolers, but... But we'll be all out along his bike route. Norman dispatch said that's how one of them freaky killers did things in New York. Found kids on their paper outs or while he was out working as a house painter, I don't know. She reads that kind of shit. Anyhow, he tipped his hat one last time and then got back into his car. Clint waited until he was out of sight to crush the truck's gas pedal to the floor and peel out toward home. force if necessary. I'll head him off in the alley and I want you to pick me up in the radio car. Swing around by 3rd and 45th. We'll get him soon enough. Huh? Gretch was not on the couch when he got back. Nor was she in the bedroom. Or the kitchen. The television was still on. Filling the room with the lights and sounds of static. But Gretch was not there. The can that had appeared on the credenza thing was right where he left it. The flames had not diminished and had filled the entire house with a wet, suffocating heat. Clint picked it up off the ground and was surprised to find the bucket itself wasn't hot in the least. It was cool and wet, in fact, like a bad handshake. He took it out back, letting the undying fire light his way through the scrap heaps. Clouds had floated in to darken the sky, and the backyard felt small and cramped cavernous. We heard Gretch before he saw her, chuckling and cooing to herself in the stacks. He knew where he'd find her, if not how he'd find her, in what state. It was all bad, but what else had he expected? She sat inside her own fat, the breadth of her monumental ass spreading behind her like a great, sweating cushion. Her legs quivering funnels of flesh ending in comically small feet were splayed to the sides, but still a massive swath of lap remained. She seemed to sit upright within herself, a normal, more perfectly shaped human wavering just beneath the surface of all this morbid obesity. Clint didn't mind this about her. Her body meant nothing to him save the parts he savored, and the fat didn't much affect those. How she wanted to be was her choice, That was their unspoken contract. But this, today and tonight, this was a breach beyond simple latitudes. This was evil beyond reckoning. This was the end of sanity. The boy, a boy, something that might have been a boy, lay curled in her lap. Its legs fell over on the edge of her to lay in the sparse grass beside a rusted-out can of green beans. The knees on those spindly, useless legs knocked together endlessly, motivated by the brainless spasms that controlled the rest of the boys. The thing's body. 
Clint could see the smears on the credenza where Gretch had found this last and latest wish. Bloody footprints pressed deep into the earth showed where she'd walked. The woman hadn't owned fitting shoes in years, so she'd made her trek out here through the rust and the brambles barefoot. Nothing would stop her from this passion, it seemed. She had no eyes for Clint, only for the boy. Its twisted, toothless lips opened and shut in counter-rhythm to the rest of the body shaking. A tongue, too long, too black to be human, lapped up out of that mouth at the pinkish moon of Gretch's breast. A tacky milk leaked from her nipple, pulling in the boy's mouth over and over again until he coughed it out onto his chest. His arms lay curled, twisted and useless as they were, against his chest as he shuddered and shook and occasionally moaned through that blowhole of a mouth. His skin wasn't skin, but the chapped and cracked brown of a dried callus. It wrinkled and folded over his bones as though it weren't quite adhered to them, all save his stomach, a hard, bloated ball that heaved with some other interior life, and his prick, which looked like that of a grown man. It was covered over with hair and half-stiff in Gretch's gently squeezing hand. What the fuck have you done? Clint said. She ignored him. A green-yellow gel spurted from the thing's half-erection and Clint turned and vomited, setting the fiery bucket aside just in time to keep from burning his face off. He's beautiful, Gretch said. It's everything I ever wanted. He turned his horrified eyes on her, wanting to make sense of all this terror and nonsense and failing. Our boy said he hated me for what I'd done. He said I was gross and I made him feel gross. Said he was going to tell you. So I hit him with a frying pan and dropped him out in one of those fields just down the end of the street. You're so fucking stupid you never even noticed. He sunk down into the mud and they grew all that corn right over top him. She glared at Clint when he said this. He steadied himself and stood. I felt sick after. So like I couldn't move anymore, Gretch said. People don't like me and I could see it in their faces so I stopped going out. You they liked. But not me. She bent down to the mockery of a child in her arms. He's just a fucking retard, isn't he, baby? The thing cooed at her. Gretch went to say something else, but the words caught in her throat. Her eyes bulged. She pulled her hands out from beneath the boy thing and slapped at her chest, clawed at the back of her neck. A wet gurgle built in her throat as her mouth, her eyes began to bleed. Her head, already impossibly fat for a human being, grew red and more bloated. More. It swelled like a pumpkin until she was sweating blood from every pore. Then her head simply disappeared. All that remained was the steady pulse of blood from the wet stump of her neck. The remaining body slumped back against the ground, heaving and bucking in death spasms and sending the disgusting child thing rolling across the ground. Its face landed against Gretch's steadily rocking ankle, 
and Clint watched as its tongue stretched forward and guided it to suckle at the fat surrounding her calf. Clint shuddered, feeling a great coolness sweeping over him. He turned to see Gretch's head resting on a silver platter atop the credenza, her gray eyes cast to the sky. Her purple tongue lolled right ways out of her mouth. Her sharp, nasty teeth seemed to be cut into the meat of it. It began to rain. Not hard, just mean, cold little droplets that made Clint's skin break out in goosebumps. The drops sputtered into the flaming gullet of the bucket behind him. Flecked, Gretch's dead flesh in the face of her perfect child the one she'd wanted. He fell to his knees before the credenza, looking for all the world like a penitent at worship before the most profane of altars. He reached to the small cabinet door with a shaking hand, wondering what might lay inside, and brushing his fingers against the steadily growing tightness at the base of his throat. don't want what did you think if you had the credenza in your life what do you think would pop up on it what would you be willing to lose and most importantly what the hell was going on in that house out in the field before clint arrived let me know in the west side fairy tales horror and lit club on facebook and discord the horror and lit club is a place where like-minded fans of the show can come and talk about what they are reading watching and playing as well as our stories If you'd like to join, just check the description of this episode for a link. While you're at it, follow us everywhere on social media. Just search Westside Fairy Tales on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. I'm like, literally on TikTok making dumbass videos all day long, so if you want more of me, that's where I'll be. If you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. For just $1, you can get access to everything show-related at least a day early. Patrons who are more generous can also get merch, super early access to content, and ebooks. You can buy our merch at westsidefairytales.com/merch if you just like to get a shirt, and don't forget that the paperback for season 4, The Eyes Beneath My Father's House, is available now from Amazon. Next time on the Westside Fairy Tales, join us for a trip into the foggy hills of West Virginia to the lonely home of an old widow. After a terrible storm nearly destroys her property, this woman is confronted by the threatening Mr. Bags, who seems dead set on forcing her out of her home. While she's certainly put on her back foot, Edith Harlow is not a woman to be trifled with, and before the end of her story, she might find she's not as alone as she seems. I hope you'll join us in December for our story, The Tortures of Edith Harlow, and until next time... As always, stay safe out there.
The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Sound designed by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode artwork by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2021 WSF Productions, LLC. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.